Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Hey everybody, it's Stacy Wedding and Andy Shirk here with you for another edition of Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where we talk about everything nonprofit that's on your mind. We are especially excited. Uh, we've gotten a lot of questions and we appreciate it. We want to encourage you to keep doing that. And of course, if you like what you're hearing, please share the link with your friends, your colleagues, and hey, Maybe even those board members. This might be required reading at a board meeting. Um, and um, there's also, you know, iTunes podcasts. You can like and give us, you know, some stars. If you really like us, give us five stars. Not that we want to bribe you or anything. But um, thanks for being here. And thanks to Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits for making this possible for all of us. You can always check out these episodes going to Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits or to Nonprofit Everything. So just check us out. Okay, Andy, this one is in your wheelhouse. I have a Las Vegas-based client who is submitting their 501c3 application today. They may need a 501c3 fiscal sponsor until they receive their IRS letter of determination. Can you recommend any Nevada-based organizations that provide this service? Sure, but I think we probably need to talk about terminology first. So, um, one thing that comes, well, first of all, thank you for asking the question. It's It's a really good question. Um, you may be confusing fiscal sponsor with fiscal agent. So what a fiscal sponsor is, is if you have an idea for a nonprofit program, you want to do something that says, you know, maybe you want to uh, collect food from some Starbucks and then deliver that to people who are hungry. Um, But you don't really want to go through the whole process of starting up a whole nonprofit. Plus you realize there are a bunch of people in town that do something similar. What you could do is you can start the program and then work with a nonprofit that has a similar mission to what you're doing, and then have your program just sort of fold in under their under their nonprofit. So in that case, they would be a fiscal sponsor for you. So in this one, you would look at Food Bank in Northern Nevada or maybe Three Square down in Las Vegas. You'd ask them, hey, do you guys want to be a fiscal sponsor for this program that I'm putting on that has to do with hunger? And I think the advantage from what I understand about this is that donors get a full tax deduction doing it that way, right? Because they're actually giving to sort of that 501c3 established exempt entity. That's right. So what you're, what you're really doing is you're kind of bypassing the whole process of doing the, the Form 1023 and getting your own nonprofit and your 501c3, all that kind of stuff. You don't have to do any of that. You're basically just borrowing it from the institution that you're gonna, that's going to be the fiscal sponsor. Now, the tricky part is, is that it's really their money. The money's not going to you. It's going to them. And then you do the program, and then they will help fund the program for you. They will basically give it to you, the money, once you've done that program. Um, so you don't have to get a 501c3 when you do that. That's the benefit of that. And it's quick. Uh, well, I say it's quick, right? Then you have to go through their you know, board or their process to make sure you can be their fiscal sponsor. But it's quicker than going through the 1023 process and doing all that paperwork. And I think a lot of people are looking for sort of that – that solution that's a little more timely than having to wait three, six months. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it, it's probably quicker and it's definitely less expensive because you don't have to pay to have an attorney put together the 1023 for you. You don't have to pay the IRS the $850 or 
depending on how big it's going to be. How, you don't have to give them any money to get a 501c3, so you can skip that whole process. So it's a little bit less risk, right? Less less of a gamble, less risk for yeah. somebody who's doing it. Yeah, I you mean, don't need a board. You, yeah. don't need, you really just need a program idea, and then you need to find a nonprofit that's willing to be your fiscal sponsor. And then, so, Yeah, someone you trust. Yeah, so in this, in this instance, um, the, it sounds like what they're doing is they've done the 1023 already, and they're trying to start their own nonprofit with the 1023, but they're in this sort of interim period where they've given the information to the IRS and they're waiting to get the information back. So in that case, um, I don't think a fiscal sponsorship is a good idea for you. Um, a fiscal sponsorship is, you know, if you were asking the, so we'll, we'll parse the question two different ways. If you weren't going to get a 501c3, if you just wanted to do the program and you want it to be tax exempt, looking for a fiscal sponsor, who would do that in town would be somebody that has the same mission of what your program is going to be. So if it's education-related, you'd find an education nonprofit. If it's medical-related, you might find a medical nonprofit. If it's food-related, I could go on, right? <laughs> the, yes, on like a, and on and on. Every conceivable <laughs> reason you might start a nonprofit. That's helpful information, Andy. Thank you. Um, so, so that's who you would look for. The other question that they're asking is they've already started this 501c3 process, so what they're not really looking for is not a fiscal sponsor. They're looking for what's called a fiscal agent. And what a fiscal agent is, is someone who, before you can get your organization up and running, somebody that can do the accounting for you, that might be able to put your money in their bank account and can kind of keep track of all of that stuff and do all the back office sorts of things for you. The stuff none of us want to do. Right. Well, I love doing it. Oh, well, you're you're a geek like that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy to do it, sir. So a fiscal agent will do that for you, but you're not really borrowing their 501c3. They're just like providing a service for you. Um, And... And the other thing that we should probably talk about is once you send your application in to the IRS to get your nonprofit status, the IRS doesn't say, the IRS says yes or no, but that doesn't preclude you from behaving as if you're already a nonprofit once you've turned that information in. So you get the, you send your 1023 and you can start actually taking tax tax deductible donations from donors immediately. If at the end of the day, you don't end up getting your nonprofit. You're going to have an un- yeah. <laughs> right? That's not a real fun situation. Right. But, but as long as those tax receipt letters, right, have the proper language in them to say, you know, we've applied and this is tax deductible, assuming, you know, this goes through, there's some nice language you can use around that to sort of cover your bases, be really upfront with the donor. Right, right. Yeah, and that's the trick is being really upfront with the donor, telling them that you've applied for nonprofit status and that you haven't gotten it yet, but you expect to, and that in the unlikely event that you don't get nonprofit status, that that would not be a tax-deductible gift, and then you've kind of covered your own bases. And I think that, um, so the other sort of distinguishing factor is also that, so I think in this case, because the person has already, like you said, applied, you know, they've done the 1023 form, they're trying to get their status, it's great. Um, somebody who is just an incubator program that, as you mentioned, doesn't have the desire to actually be, you know, 501c3 or go through that process yet, maybe they want to test it out, right? Because we all want to sometimes see, is this going to work? Is this going to gain traction? And maybe I don't want to run the entire risk of going and getting my own 501c3, so maybe I do this fiscal sponsor sort of relationship with a partner entity. I think a couple things to keep in mind. Um, the MOU between you and that entity really needs to be clearly spelled out because I've seen so many um, people who are starting these incubation projects that are passions of theirs that still think that it's because it's their idea that they own it, that it's their intellectual property. So you need to make sure all of that stuff is spelled out in that MOU because ultimately you're giving 
the donations are going to that 501c3 exempt entity. That's right. Yeah. And, and nonprofit people use the word MOU all the time. And it's memorandum of understanding. And to be honest, it's a contract. Yeah. And you need to treat it the same way you would treat any contractor agreement. It's not something you just kind of write up. If it's something that if there's going to be money changing hands, you're worried about intellectual property, you absolutely need to get an attorney to help you look at that to make sure it says what you think it says. Um, just because it's a nonprofit doesn't mean you can sort of skip all of those like legal steps and just you know, do it the wishy-washy way. That'll never work. Yeah, absolutely. And the sort of second half of this question of, about who would be good um, as sort of maybe potentially a fiscal sponsor or, you know, if this person goes fiscal agent, I think those are two different um, avenues. Fiscal agent, depending on what your needs are, right? If you're looking for back office support, finance support, whatever that might be, you want somebody who's got that those robust systems and infrastructure in place because obviously that's something you may be lacking or still needing to build. Right. So that's one thing. Fiscal sponsor, I actually am a huge proponent of community foundations for fiscal sponsorship because community foundations offer that flexibility since they help benefit the entire community and beyond. There is a lot of wiggle room with them being able to take things that perhaps – um, other organizations who have a very narrow mission, um, it's just not as much of a connect and a good fit for both parties, whereas community foundations are oftentimes in the business and known for being fiscal sponsors because of the reason that they offer that sort of broad um, mission of they're here to support and strengthen the community, and you can fit a lot under that umbrella. So um, there's some other tests that they have to go through that you don't have to worry about. That's that's incumbent upon them to sort of do that research. But any local community foundation, you should definitely at least have a conversation with them. Okay, with all the changes to the Facebook algorithms, I'm finding that posts to our Facebook page are no longer reaching our audiences in the same way. How do we get around this and got our message out to our stakeholders? Social media is this ever-changing beast and... I think it is tough if you don't have an expert, whether it's on your board or a volunteer or a staff member to keep up with all of this. So A, this is a great question and a perfect opportunity to potentially get some social media expertise or find maybe uh, interns or somebody who is staying up with all of this who might be able to give you some guidance. Uh, I know just enough to be dangerous, but I'll share with you the little bit I do know. And that is that, you know, Facebook is basically at this point wanting you to either pay or they want you to feed the platform. And it's either one, right? You buy Facebook ads or you keep people on Facebook engaging. So they're following and liking, they're commenting on your posts. So I even ran into this just with my own business. And I've heard several nonprofits do this where they keep thinking it's about making more posts that they're not posting frequently enough. And it actually has nothing to do with that. And it has everything to do with getting people to talk back to you because instead of paying Facebook looks at that saying, if you're not going to pay us, at least you're getting people to engage with our platform. So that's okay then. But if you're getting nobody that's sort of, you know, answering questions you pose on your page or whatever, you got to figure out another strategy because it's either going to be kind of pay to play or your engagement is is the way to go. And absolutely, we we should even bring an expert on to, to talk about this in more detail. Well, here through the magic of podcasting, we can bring in our expert right now. So I'd like to introduce... Heather Curry-Frommer, she's a social media expert that's come to answer the question. Take it away, Stacy and Heather. Heather, thanks so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have someone with your expertise. 
Well, um, Stacy, first, thanks for having me. And really, that is the million dollar question these days. There's unfortunately no simple answer. And it really has become a reality that unless you're a, a very large brand with thousands or millions of followers, um, you don't get much traction. So, but there are a couple of ways you can, you can get around that. First, in the easiest way, is you can actually um, play the game and, and use their Facebook advertising because that's what they want. Um, it, you can invest a minimal amount. Uh, it can be, uh, I've seen some really successful campaigns done with $50 or even $100. Um, and the one good thing about Facebook advertising is that you really can target your audiences and, and where you're trying to hit. And this is, it's even better than what you can do with traditional advertising. So in that way, it's actually a little bit better. Having said that, I know that not everyone can afford um, to do that sort of thing. So what are some things you can do that don't cost any money? Um, so here's some tips. First, always include um, some type of graphic element in any of your posts, um, and especially video. Video is great. Facebook really likes video. Um, it can be um, a cell phone video. It doesn't have to be expensive or fancy. There's a lot of online tools now, um, desktop tools that are free or very low cost that can help you edit um, your content. So they, you can, they can look pretty darn good, pretty professional. Um, another tip is to use your employees to help you advocate and tell your story. So a great example, I was working with this um, organization and they did a Halloween decorating contest every year. So we said, why don't you take the voting this year to social media? So all the employees were, vote for me, vote for me, to their friends and family. Well, let me tell you, we had hundreds and hundreds of votes. It was actually very hard to keep track of, but it was good. And the response was just incredible. And also in the meantime, they garnered lots of new followers. So it really did, it's kind of that word of mouth and you're letting your employees tell that story for you, right? So another thing your employees can do um, is to give a behind the scenes look at your organization. So here's an example. So instead of posting a flyer about an upcoming event, let's say, shoot a video. Shoot a video of staff preparing for the event. It gives people a unique look into your organization and it also gives your brand uh, a little bit more personality. Uh, another thing you can do, which is, this is really popular with the millennials nowadays, is to use user-generated content or you may have heard it referred to as UGC. So what that means is you're sharing content that other users are creating. So if someone writes a good review about your organization, share it. If someone goes to one of your events and they post great photos or videos, share those. So once again, you're letting other people tell your story. That's helping to spread it. Their friends are seeing it. And it's kind of this digital word of mouth sort of thing, right? And then finally, um, Facebook loves itself. So <laughs> Facebook has its own tools. Use those tools to your advantage. So going back to an example of, say you have an event coming up create a Facebook event for it. What that allows uh, folks to do is to check into that event or the RSVP. And I know in my own feed, I see so-and-so is interested in an event near you tomorrow. So right there, you, that, the word of your event, the word of your organization is starting to spread a little bit more. So then once you have your event, what's the next step? Go live on Facebook 
It's easy to do. They've, they've made it really easy for everyone. So there's another way you get your, your, um, your information out. You're letting people see a little bit more of, of an event that maybe they couldn't get to for some reason. Another um, thing that Facebook does that a lot of people don't utilize a lot is Facebook groups. So if people are already um, signing up on groups, they're going to be much more likely to engage in those groups. So if whatever your specific thing is you do with your organization, find groups that cater to those sorts of conversations. So, um, so like I said, there's no, um, there's no real answer to this, <laughs> but hopefully, um, you know, by using some of these tools, you might be able to get your messaging out a little bit more, um, and hopefully that helps. I love this. So I have a couple follow-up questions. I actually have a ton, but you know, of course we don't have time for that because social media is like that, that, that never ending, right? Saga. But yes, I know a lot of nonprofits listening might say, okay, I'm a small nonprofit. I only have limited hours and time. Is there one social media platform that I should use more than another or that would make more sense? And is there anything you can share any insights on that? Oh, yeah, that's that's a tough question, but I think I think the what you're the fact that you're bringing that up is important, and I think organizations need to do that because sometimes you they stretch themselves too thin. I see organizations on everything, right? They're on Pinterest, they're on Twitter, they're on this and that, and they can't keep up, and that's the worst thing you can do. So really, you know, look at what your organization does and what makes sense for you. Instagram is is incredibly visual. Um, I have one client right now that I work with that I would never recommend they go on Instagram because they have nothing visual. <laughs> it's a very, it's challenging, trust me, but I can, I can finagle stuff on Facebook, but I can't make it work for Instagram. Um, so I think it's, you just need to find what works for your organization. I mean, Facebook is, is kind of the original, the leader. So many folks are on it. I don't think you can go wrong with, with Facebook. Uh, but I think once you start branching out to other platforms, especially, you know, you want to get into Pinterest and things of that nature, um, it, it, you really need to step back and assess what you do and what makes sense. That's great advice. That's great advice. Cause I, like you have seen that happen and it's, um, Sometimes it's, it's just, it's a shame because you see that if they put all that energy they're putting in spreading it all out for yes. a social media platform, right? It could be so much more effective for them. Right, right. And so last question, just tied to what you said, you talked about employees helping advocate, tell the story. Um, I know there's nonprofits that get very nervous about, oh, we should have a very controlled message and <laughs> make sure there's no typos and, and all of that. What... I don't know. Do, would you have any advice for them? Is that an is that appropriate, or should they really be saying, you know what, this is one thing we can't control, and all the more the merrier, right? Who want to post on social media? Yeah, I mean, I think when I think people have an expectation that the agency itself might be, you know, watching for typos and putting out more professional information, but I think. When it comes to employees, I don't think people have that expectation. They realize that it's, it's an employee. And so, you know, you can share, the organization can share what they feel is appropriate or maybe what's not. I mean, it's not to say that everything that employee X is putting out there is appropriate. You know, I mean, they may say not so nice things about your organization. You're not going to share that, but you will share what you think is appropriate. Um, yeah, I, I think that 
you know, the days of, of proper <laughs> grammar and, and a lot of those things have really gone away with social media. <laughs> I don't know that the expectations are there anymore. So I do think sometimes organizations need to um, back off a little bit. Now, there are things you see where people say do let people do an Instagram takeover. And that's a great way to get um, a really good behind the scenes and stuff like that. But that is, that's an example where you, that may be something that's a little too much for some organizations because that's really handing it over and saying, giving someone the reins that that's, you really have to trust and feel comfortable with the person doing that. So wow. you, you may not want to go that far, but you may want to, um, you know, do a contest with employees like, who can come up with the best content, who can share the best thing, who can take the best picture from our event and then share that. And that's a really easy way to share that information without being, um, without just handing it over. I love that. So people <laughs> or control freaks like me can still have a little control, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Awesome. Well, I, you are always a wealth of knowledge. I could probably talk to you for hours with <laughs> all of us, but thank you for giving us your time, Heather. Oh, you're so welcome. It was a pleasure. an ongoing debate among our finance director, executive director, and board about how much cash a nonprofit should have in reserve. Is there a right amount? What is best practice? There is absolutely a right amount. And the right amount is the amount of money that makes you not have to worry about it. It doesn't keep you up at night. <laughs> it doesn't keep you up at night. And obviously, we know that boards are really conservative. And so your board, I'm going to guess the way this works is the finance director is going for a low number. The executive director doesn't have an opinion, but they want the board to be happy. And the board wants a really high number. That's my guess of how those three, <laughs> those three people have in that conversation. So, so there is a right answer and it just involves using Excel. So what you want to do is you want to do a cash flow projection where you look at all of the money that's going out over the course of a year, all of the money that comes in over the course of a year, you're going to forecast that. You're going to see when it comes out, when it goes out and make sure that that number never drops below zero. And that's the amount of money that you're going to have in your cash reserve is to make sure that that number never goes below zero. Now, some people are going to be totally uncomfortable with zero because zero is really close to yes. the negative one, right? Yes. You never want to be in the red mm -hmm. at all. So they're going to want to have some sort of buffer in place. And there are lots of interesting things you can do, um, lots and lots of interesting things you can do to sort of create a buffer without actually having to just have a chunk of money sitting in the bank doing nothing. So, so you can have some money invested. You might think about having the board designate something to be a, a, a board-designated restriction that you keep there in the unlikely event that you need it. You can talk to your bank about getting a, a line of credit that you can access so that occasionally when you dip below zero, you can actually hit the bank for the line of credit. You only, get, you only pay interest on it while you've had it taken out. You pay it back. Um, you can, you can factor your accounts receivable. There's all kinds of fun stuff mm. that you can do. Um, but the, the trick, the key is really putting that cash flow statement together and be really serious about it and saying that this is where the money goes out, this is where the money comes in, and this is what the difference is. I've never seen somebody get so excited and whose eyes get so big and lit up about cash flow statements. So if you all could just see Andy right now, it's pretty cool. So. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an easy answer. I mean, I love that there's an ongoing debate about it, but I mean, okay, so... 
whoever wrote this question, I'm guessing it wasn't the finance director. And if it was the finance director, um, I got your back because you're, you have the right answer, finance director, which is look at my stupid cash flow. <laughs> look at my cash flow projection. This is the answer. So if if your executive director and your board person doesn't believe it, just point them to this podcast episode. And if they have a problem, they can come to my house and we'll talk about it. There. Boy, they'll arm wrestle. <laughs> we could, no, I'm not, I'm not arm wrestle. <laughs> We'll have an Excel. We'll have an Excel spreadsheet. Mind wrestle. <laughs> Something. <laughs> I do think one one thing to add from the non finance expert or not non finance person. Uh, I also think an operating reserve policy makes sense. And Andy, I want you to push back if you totally are against these. But I think what happens is you hear so many times people have this great idea of the rainy day fund or the reserve fund in case some unexpected expense or something comes up, right? Smart idea. I know I do it in my personal life. Probably should be doing, everyone should be doing that in business and nonprofit as well. Uh, So at the end of the day, though, under what circumstances does, you know, money get taken from that reserve? And do you ever go to a certain amount do you sort of say we are always going to like it's got to be like an, a natural disaster crisis before we dip below a certain level um, and while it's in the reserve as you said what happens with it is it just sitting there as cash or is there an opportunity for that money to make money for you in some way and different boards will have different risk tolerance but I do think having at least a dialogue if there's a, a debate going on already it probably means that there's a lot of pieces and parts to this um, that are coming out. So perhaps having a conversation about it, even setting sort of, maybe it's not even a formal policy, but some guidelines around, here's what we're going to work toward with an operating reserve. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I'm a little snide about it, but I'm, I'm really imagining the perfect world where you can accurately forecast, I mean, reasonably well forecast, see where the money's going to come in and where it's going to go out. Out is a lot easier than in, yeah. obviously. Um, but, but in most cases, so say your organization wants to expand, you've got a grant, there's like an 85% chance you're going to get that grant, um, and it's a big dollar amount, um, and, but you need to start spending money before the grant comes in to be prepared for it because grants are like that, right? Sometimes you get the mm. money and after, you get it after it's already been oh, spent. Yeah. So if there's any risk for those kinds of things, then absolutely you want to have something that like, you know, in that 15% chance that that's going to happen, what do we do? Right. So that all has to be factored into it. And rainy day funds are great for that kind of thing. Like if you have just a really stellar year, um, a lot of times. So I talked to a lot of organizations that are really interested in building an endowment because um, I think from the board's perspective, that feels like they take it takes the pressure off of fundraising, Mm -hmm. which for many boards is uncomfortable, as we Mm -hmm. said earlier. Right. Um, And so they they imagine this endowment is like this just massive pool of money that they don't ever have to fundraise again. They'll just spend the interest and dividends and capital gains off of it. Right. Um, and so they always want to fundraise. I've had organizations that want to fundraise for an endowment. Yes. I've had some very smart, very smart board members who are like, absolutely, we absolutely need to fundraise for an endowment, um, which, you know, for from my perspective, it's like, well, you know, honestly, I'd like to raise money for what we're going to do now and not raise money for what we're going to do in 10 years, because an endowment is something that you invest. And then, yes. you, you you know, if you can't have a short term Investment, short-term investments don't pay that well. They're entirely too risky. And if your your whole point of you doing this is to avoid risk, you're just complicating that. You're Absolutely. just basically making the finance person's hair go gray way faster. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, so there is something to be said for a rainy day fund. If you get a bequest, those are great. That's a great time to like, hey, it's free money. What are we going to do with it? Maybe we should salt this away so that we don't have to, you know, so that for a rainy day fund or put in an endowment or something like that. Um, but for the money that you're raising day in, day out, I mean, 
you're supposed to be doing your mission, right? Well, you bring up a really good point. So I actually did some work with an organization that had so much in reserves. I mean, I think they had about two years worth of reserves that, and it wasn't in an endowment. It wasn't invested long term. It was in cash, which killed me because I'm like, at least put it in a money market. But whatever, that was me just saying, make some, yeah, I don't care if you make pennies off it, just do Do something, something. CDs, (laughs) I don't care, bonds, whatever. Anyways, but um, at the end of the day, they actually had a donor who, when the donor started to look at their financials, said, why are you holding on to this money? Is there like a big expense down the way? Is there something you're saving for? And they didn't have an answer to it. It was just they wanted to be that cushion, have such a big cushion and that conservative. At the end of the day, the donor said, you don't really need my money then because at the end, it, because what what are you doing with this? There's a huge need you're not serving right now because you are being so careful and, and sort of stingy with the money instead of actually meeting that need. Now, smart being smart about money is one thing, but actually sort of hoarding it is a whole other issue. And so I think there is a fine line with some of this. Yeah, so I would I would propose that that organization did not have a cash flow projection. Yeah, I'm sure they didn't. Yeah. So if you have a cash flow projection, then that gives you evidence of what kind of cushion you're going to need to hold, and, and then you can say this is why we need this money salted away. Um, if you don't have a cash flow projection, then you're just like, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to stick it all it in the mattress. <laughs> I believe that was the mentality. Well, that's it for uh, yet another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Um, thanks again for taking the time to listen to us. If you wouldn't mind... Um, if you if you got to this through the um, through an Apple product, you have the opportunity to rate the podcast. And what would be amazing is if you rate that podcast five stars. Not, that's not just that doesn't just make Stacy and I feel better, although it does make us feel better. You put a smile on our face. <laughs> you make us yeah, just listening makes us happy. Um, so what it also does is it it pushes us up the list so that other people can find this too. Um, if you would please forward the link if you thought this was interesting go ahead and forward it to your friends if you if you hated it forward it to people that you don't like (laughs) (laughs) tell them it's a great (laughs) great uh, snooze fest right and uh, also please visit the alliance for nevada nonprofits they are the organization that helps us put this on if it weren't for Anne, we wouldn't be doing this at all they're the ones that are producing this on our behalf so check out Anne's website and see the kinds of things that they can do for you and then for the last thing, please, if you have a question, if there's something that we were talking about and you were like, oh, I wonder about this, just go to the Nonprofit Everything webpage or the Ann website and shoot us a question. Like, even if it's like random and you think it's a dumb one, we love random dumb questions because they are easier for us to answer. So please do that. And we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.